0: We are here today with our lovely friend, Dr. Sonia, also known as Pelvic Pain Doc. You can give her a follow on Instagram. Thank you. (laughs) She has a good Instagram, I promise. That's sort of how we became friends a couple of years ago. (laughs) Because, you know, there's not many... Physicians on Instagram that are sort of real and have like a very specific field of knowledge that they want to share with everyone, and she's one of those. That
1: is so kind. Yes.
0: (laughs) And that's why you're our first physician guest on the show.
1: That's exciting. That's awesome. Definitely an honor. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Honestly, you guys are so you're so comfortable. It's nice.
0: Yes. So I'm going to try to give a one liner to describe like a little bit about you. But obviously, as we go on throughout this, you might have a different explanation. Sure. But my understanding is like, you know, the term is pelvic pain doc, which is sort of like a niche term you made up for yourself, but that you did training and you did an OBGYN residency, then did a fellowship in urology with an
1: interest in, you know, things that contribute to pelvic pain. Exactly that. Yeah. I mean, when I started my OBGYN residency, I realized there was not many people that were looking at the bladder and, and that as a cause of pelvic pain as well. So it was really awesome to get to work with a urologist to kind of add that element to diagnosing and understanding pelvic pain in patients. And then I ended up staying on and being their partner, being a partner in the Department of Urology for seven years. So I feel like it's really more of a patient-centered as opposed to a problem-centered approach, which is really where the way medicine is heading right now. So mm-hmm. it's really a field I love. I'm passionate about it.
0: So how did you initially decide to go into medicine?
1: Ooh. So I actually did grow up in a family of doctors. I'm one of, I mean, okay, like I'm Indian. I guess it (laughs) it goes with the stereotype here. But um, both my parents, so my dad's a dentist and my mom's a doctor. I grew up in a family of doctors. It was almost like one of those things where people expected me to become a doctor. But it wasn't so much because... I did it because of that. But, like, I would go to work with my mom. I would see nurses. I would see doctors. I would see people healing people. And I know it sounds corny, Mm -hmm. but I'm being, like, dead serious Mm -hmm. right now. I would see people really healing people. And I was like, I definitely want to do this. And when I started down the road, it was like there was no turning back because I actually did love kind of. All the different aspects of medicine. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: I can relate. I have a physician parent, so clearly it influences you on some level. Totally. A lot of respect for what they do generally. For
1: sure. And they love what they, I mean, I even look at my yeah. parents now. They still, they're not the generation that's like, don't do it. They're like the generation that's like, we did it and we love it. And now just medicine's changing in general. Yeah.
0: So did you know when you started
1: medical school that you wanted to go the OB-GYN route or when did that occur? No. So when I started medical school, I actually did not think I wanted to do women's health. I actually thought I wanted to do psych, to be honest, hundred <laughs> percent. I was like, I love the way the mind works and I loved understanding it. And it was honestly one of my favorite rotations. Um, and then I did surgery and I did urology and then I wanted to do more of like a surgical subspecialty. Yeah. And, and I did women's health and I was like this is a nice combination of the two I could tailor my life and then I did residency and while I loved it I realized that I didn't love the OB part as Mm -hmm. much as I loved the GYN part Mm -hmm. and then I realized that While I loved the GYN part, I actually loved more of, like, the in-office visits and the patients that really weren't getting better, and that's when I kind of figured out this niche was, like, really where I wanted to be. But, you know, there was a point in my career where I was like, maybe I just don't want to do medicine anymore because like, you know, you go through residency and there are times like that where you're just overworked and you're tired and you're like, maybe this is not for me. But then as you keep going, there's like these moments and you're like, okay, this is exactly why I'm doing this right now. Yeah. And we can definitely
0: relate to
2: that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you really live for those moments.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so you, you touched on how your training after, um, after medical school went, um, I have to tell you, just on an aside, I'm the opposite. I actually went into medical school to wanting to be, and I wanted to be an obstetrician, like
1: my whole life. Oh, so interesting! And then I switched <laughs> and, yeah, I went over to
2: neuro. So
1: um, I should be asking you how that happened. <laughs> Another conversation for a later date. Yeah, I think we switched brains. <laughs> yes.
2: So, um, you know how. Are there any other opportunities? Do you work with any NPs or PAs or therapists? And also, I was curious if you work with any doulas?
1: Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, I think that in terms of what I do, in terms of this niche, it's multidisciplinary. So I work with general gynecologists. I work with physical therapists. I work with psychiatrists. I work with therapists. Like actual therapists, and then I think that there's a role for doulas. Do you know what I mean? I mm-hmm. think there's a role for everything. Um, it's just a matter of how you use it. So I, I say this to my own patients. I say it like it's like me having a tennis racket and Andre Agassi having a tennis racket. He plays a lot better than I do, right? As physicians, clinicians, all all our different specialties, we all have the same tools. It's just how you use them. So I think they're an important part of care, but understanding where they fall into that paradigm is really what sets them apart.
0: Yeah, for sure. And going back to a little bit about like why you decided upon like your field. So I know that you did urology and you explained a little bit about how like you liked the gyne aspect and and, like I'm sure there are some experiences that are very specific that drew you to that. When you did that urology fellowship, did you go in with intention of I am getting extra training to treat pelvic pain specifically. Did yes. you know? Okay, yes.
1: so so specifically, I'll, I'll do a little name dropping here only because like <laughs> if anyone's ever interested in the field, it's so niche that you kind yeah. of. So I, when I did my residency at New York Presbyterian, there was a guy named William Ledger, and he was really big in GYN and had done a lot of research on like recurrent yeast infections and vulvodynia, and it was stuff that people weren't doing. And this was during my last year of residency, and this is when I was like, maybe I don't love, maybe I spent all this time and I don't love what I do. And Mm -hmm. maybe I should really, I was thinking about working for a pharmaceutical company. I mean, I'm being serious. Yeah. This was, I was consulting. um, I had talked to McKinsey. I mean, it really like, and then one of my old chief residents was doing uh, an away rotation in urology. And she said, I met this guy named Rob Moldwin, and he treats interstitial cystitis. And we had been out to dinner like a few nights before, and I had been like, like, you know, there's this thing called IC and people don't even know about it. And it's so interesting because all these people with vulvodynia have it and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, you should meet him. And I was like, and meeting Rob Moldwin was like, it was like me, it was like Jesus teaching Like Sunday school, okay. I was like, yes, I get to meet him. So then I went over to him and we had a conversation. He was like, "You should be my fellow. Like you love like the urological aspects of it, and as GYNs, you do things like cystos Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing." So then I was his fellow, and we just got along really well. And he didn't know any of the vulvodynia stuff, so he was like why don't you become my partner? And then we can treat patients like as a whole, Mm -hmm. we're doing the pelvic floor, we're doing IC, it's actually like a pelvic pain center and he's the one that coined the term pelvic pain specialist. So, So that's how it happens and then um, but it was really fortunate because it's just so many patients are kind of toggled around from urologist yeah. to gynecologist yeah. to physiatrists, and they don't know where to go. And so it's nice to kind of take a step back and be like, no, 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 we can approach this from a holistic point of view mm-hmm. as opposed to just having 10 different opinions and 10 different procedures.
0: Yeah, I love it. I do want to clarify for our people who are maybe not from a medical background, what's vulvodynia?
1: Oh, vulvodynia. So it's. <laughs> now we call it vestibulodynia just to confuse you more just Mm -hmm. because I like to be confusing (laughs) so it's basically pain in the vagina or the vestibule that we can't tell is coming from something like an infection like some sort of vulvar dermatoses like some sort of um so so there's no factor that we see in there that we can see so it's vaginal pain that we treat that doesn't necessarily have a cause that we can see with the naked eye
0: Okay, and I'm sure there are many female listeners right now that can relate to that. Yeah. I feel like I've had so many conversations with friends and stuff like that who have experienced these symptoms and sort of been in a lost cause. And I think too, like even just from like posting your Instagram, I've had people like message me like, oh my God, there's a pelvic pain specialist. And it's like very comforting to them that there's someone out there that specializes in this.
1: Yeah. There's so many patients that I'll see that will be like, I just could never put in a tampon. And I I never really knew why. And then my GYN just shoved a speculum in and said like, Oh, it's fine. You're good. Don't worry about it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, they don't even realize that that has can cause further issues or that's even like a, an initial symptom of vestibulodynia. Yeah.
0: yeah. And when you were talking about interstitial cystitis, to me, <laughs> I have sort of a funny story. And I think it's sort of why I was like, when you said the pelvic, when I knew you're a pelvic pain specialist, I was like, oh, my heart goes out to that. Because when I was in college, The clear contributing factor was that I was drinking like 60 ounces of coffee a day, but I started having to pee like 17 times a day. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, what's wrong with me? And I went to like my OB guy and they were like, you need to go to a urology specialist. Then they just like told me I had interstitial cystitis. I don't have it at all anymore. I cut back on the coffee and I'm good, but like yeah. back in college, I was like, what is wrong with me? Everything is broken.
1: But <laughs> this is a huge thing because a lot of doctors, if they can't, because it's so subspecialized, not everyone is trained in diagnosing and understanding these things. So they'll they'll say, oh, you feel like you have a UTI, oh, you're peeing mm-hmm. a lot, you're young, you don't have an infection, you have IC. Mm-hmm. I, tell, I tell all my patients, I say 70% of you who walk in here actually don't have IC, but that's just the diagnosis that That's given when people just don't know what to do, and it's really unfortunate.
2: So I actually have—I don't know if it's a theory or a question or something you can talk about, but is—is it possible that um, you know pelvic pain and and you know the type of medicine that you do is a little underserved because for so long, for so many years, you know, unfortunately, medicine was was male-dominated, and you know it's changed now. But do you think that? that, I don't want to use the word neglect, but that,
1: you know, that has anything to do with why it's so, you know, little is so known? I think that's an interesting point. I think it's twofold. I think part of it is that, and part of it is the fact that these issues are stigmatized. And women and men alike, because men can have pelvic pain too, But nobody wants to talk about it because they feel like somehow it makes them inferior to not be able to place a tampon, to have pain with initial penetration, to, you know, to go to the bathroom frequently. And I think that that's a huge reason that people often don't seek care. And practitioners, in order to understand pelvic pain, have to understand the concept of multiple different pain generators so they Mm -hmm. understand layering therapy. So patients, when, when I sit in the exam room with them, our normal office, examinations are not 10 minutes long like they are for every mm-hmm. hospital. Yeah. They're a good one hour, you know what I mean? So clinicians often get, ex- they, they don't know what to do. And so they're not able to take that time. So, you know, there's like so many different factors that play a role in it. Of course, I think part of it, yeah, when, if, when me- medicine is male dominated, of course, these female issues is not going to take like a higher role. But I think that's combined with all this other stuff is really what has caused it to kind of be left back so to speak yeah and I definitely think
0: once again there's just so many factors that contribute to all of this and then like what is normal and what's actually abnormal and just like once again going back to how there was like a lack of attention to these issues but I think right now like taking away the stigma of like sexuality and sexual organs and everything that goes along is definitely we're moving in that direction and there's still a lot of ways to go
1: (laughs) yes it's a long way to go but I'm glad that we're having these conversations because then people even listening are like you know what that's not normal I should seek care for that I mean Mm -hmm. I had a patient today that was like oh, I just thought women don't orgasm. I thought mm-hmm. that was normal. Like, you know, no, that yeah. doesn't have to be normal. But that's what we, that's what society has told her is normal. Yeah. And and that's just like, that's why it's important to have these conversations. Mm-hmm.
0: There are some things that I think I worry about that like a normal person worries about too. Maybe I worry about it more because like when you are a physician and you have certain yeah. types of <laughs> knowledge, you're like, okay, do I need to worry about this? Because you see like the bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. But a question I think a lot of people wonder about is, do
1: I need to be scared about giving birth vaginally? No. So yeah, this is a question I get all the time. And I get it from patients who have pain and patients who don't have pain. But- First things first, let's be real. The vagina is a forgiving place, a very forgiving Mm -hmm. place. I mean, when children come out, some women can get these like fourth degree tears that Mm -hmm. can really be pretty gnarly. Um, But the vagina is a forgiving place and we're able to sew it back up. And many, if not most, can go back to functioning the normal way that they always functioned. Mm -hmm. The caveat to this is when is the fact that, and now I'm going to bring up another issue, is the fact that our postpartum care here in the U.S. really is lacking. Yes. And so a lot of times women just don't even want to look at their bodies. They don't even want to, they just had a baby. They don't understand that their whole body has changed. They don't know what the new normal is. And we don't have anyone even evaluating them. Anyone even saying, look, this is normal for you, which may not be normal for you. And that's really where doulas have been actually great, actually better than doctors in the sense that they do evaluate women during pregnancies and postpartum. But as physicians, we need to really be playing a bigger role in this process, Mm -hmm. I think.
2: Well, yeah, I can imagine that after you give birth, you know, you have weekly doctor's appointments with at least even a healthy baby. And I could imagine that, you know, your own care, unfortunately, must get put on the the back burner, And, you know, that that's unfortunately part of it. So it's good to have multiple resources to kind of check in.
1: Yeah, but it's healthy mom, healthy baby, you know? And so, yes, it's important to make sure that the baby's healthy and happy, but it's also important to make sure that mom's healthy and happy. And a lot of women don't even know, uh, when I give birth, when do I have sex again? Can Mm -hmm. I have sex again? That's like the last question that's asked, but it's important to them, you know?
0: Yeah, I feel like just from my observation of things, a lot of postpartum depression is directly connected to people maybe having not the most pleasant birth experiences and then you know, you place a lot of value on your body and now your body's completely different. It's like foreign and you're like, oh my God. There's such a
1: relationship too. I mean, it combined that with the hormones, with support. You now have this being that is supposed to take precedent over you and you feel selfish for any little thing that, I mean, I remember being postpartum and feeling guilty for taking a shower for 10 minutes. I mean, that's, you know, I think there's so many factors that relate to that that we have to do on a bigger level, you know?
0: So another thought that I think Allie and I both had was obviously we know things can go wrong with vaginal delivery and can result in pelvic pain. And I would imagine like the recommendations would involve like, and this is something that in America we don't have a lot of accessibility to, but like physical therapy and I'm sure there are many other treatments, but all down that road. Um, can someone have like a c-section and still have
1: pelvic pain issues and all of that afterwards for sure okay so like I did my fellowship in urology and I'm gonna be totally honest I'm totally gonna get like I'm, I'm gonna get put down for this but here we go let's do this mm-hmm. okay I had two c-sections uh-huh. okay in my first c-section I had when my baby was over 40 weeks he just did not want to come out mm-hmm. he was a big baby he was nine pounds not an indication for a c-section mm-hmm. but I, but I had worked in urology. I had seen a lot of incontinence. I had seen a lot of like other stuff going on. I didn't want it to happen to me. I said, you know what? It's an elective C section. Just do an elective C section at like 40 weeks and like four days. Okay. Like no OBGYN <laughs> is going to support this. But mine was like, all right, let's do it. This is what you want. This is what you want. But even after, you know, you can have issues with painful sex. You can have issues with urinary frequency. It's, remember, the pelvic floor actually coalesces in the back, mm-hmm. all right? And then you have these muscles that actually coalesce right up near the bladder. So mm-hmm. it's all related. So one way is not superior to another. It's really what is going to keep both the baby and the mom healthy at that time. Going. So don't do what I did. <laughs> I was yeah, I was gonna say, based upon that, would you
0: be recommending that? Because I do know there was a big push back like um, a decade or so ago where anyone who was a doctor or married to a doctor would always get a play in C section, but I think that it's the pendulum has swung a bit.
1: You know, I think I think if you can have a vaginal delivery, it's always best only because, and, and and that means not sacrificing, you know, the tracing and the baby and all of that. Mm-hmm. But if you're capable of it and, and probably if I probably was dilated, I was like zero. I was okay. like totally, you know what okay. I mean? Yeah. If, if you have, if you're favorable, yes, absolutely. I think that in general though, Women should also have the choice. I also think that that's important, and that's something, like, for me, in my brain, this was not going to happen. And so, Mm -hmm. and and truthfully, I don't think it would have. I'm just, uh, my mom had two two C-sections, my grandmother had C-sections, you know. (laughs) There's genetics involved.
2: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So, now that, you know, we've kind of addressed that it can happen in both, you know, routes, is there anything that women can do prior to delivery to kind of reduce... Or get the, you know, muscles ready, anything, you know, to keep them, you know, busy and, and also to I don't know, maybe make the pain less.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that especially right before we deliver women tend to stay off doing anything. They're like, you know, I'm not really going to exercise, right. I'm not going to run, I'm not going to do yoga, I'm not going to take care of myself and that actually I think works against them ultimately for having a safe and healthy delivery. I always recommend prenatal and postnatal yoga, not even just for the physiologic benefits of the fact that like, you know, it decreases cortisol and it downregulates your nervous system, but the fact that it really lengthens muscles and oftentimes just the lengthening of the pelvic floor muscles is really helpful in terms of delivery. It's helpful in terms of pelvic pain. It's helpful in terms of painful sex, urinary frequency. Mm-hmm. So um, so for me, it's important that women try and maintain some sort of normal uh, exercise structure that they've maintained before because I think it leads to like a physiologic benefit when delivering.
0: And so another question on that note. This is, I think this is a debated topic. So we're going to talk about Kegels, and I want to know number one, the correct way to do them, and number two, does everyone need to do them or just people who have had
1: babies? So, Kegels. First of all, Kegel, Kegels must have a good PR like manager because like everybody <laughs> talks about Kegels and like loves Kegels. And being a pelvic pain specialist, I am not the biggest lover of Kegels. Really? Yes. Because. Oh, I suspected this. Yes. I knew it. <laughs> because, because when you have a tight pelvic floor, doing Kegels actually worsens your pelvic pain. Everyone will tell you that. On top of that, something that you already alluded to was how do you do a kegel correctly? Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is not done by handing you a piece of paper that says to contract your pelvic floor muscles. What the heck is a pelvic floor muscle? Do you know where your pelvic floor muscles are? Even if I tried, even if I go like this, do I know that I'm contracting my pubococcygeus or my levator anti complex? No, you have no clue. So the, the best way, first of all, to learn how to do a kegel is to see a pelvic floor physical therapist because they do something that's called biofeedback, where they put a electrodes on the pelvic floor muscles, and they show you how to do a Kegel. They show you because when you contract, you can be contracting the completely wrong muscle. Yeah. And then you're just not doing it correctly. On top of that, not everyone needs to do Kegels. This is a huge thing for me. You can tell I'm very passionate about yes. Kegels. <laughs> you're you're going to be hearing from Mr. Kegel's PR. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Kegel. But I mean, listen, women with incontinence, stress incontinence, when you leak, when you cough and you sneeze. Do, a ke- do Kegels. Do Kegels all day, every day. Beautiful. But women who do not have that, Kegels are not going to maintain a healthy vagina or healthy pelvic floor. They're only needed in certain circumstances. And that's my point.
0: I feel validated about being lazy now.
1: See? <laughs> <Take>, good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> they do not help with orgasms, contrary to popular belief. <laughs> <laughs> so we, so before this, I knew
0: this episode was going to happen. I knew that there would be a lot of people who would be interested in your knowledge base. So I essentially posted on my Instagram. I was like, what do you guys want to ask a pelvic pain specialist? And I got a lot of good questions from doctors. And one of the requested things was just like chronic pelvic pain in the primary care setting, sort of like what should my approach be? I mean, it's really general, but I'm sure so many, and I'm not a primary care physician, but I'm sure this is like a huge issue they deal with all the time, just like conceptualizing
1: it. What should I be
2: thinking about? You know, for sure, important questions to ask, like red
1: flags. This is a great question because I wish that more people knew Number one, that there were people out there who specialized in this, and number two, that there are kind of ways to navigate this situation. So when someone comes in to your office and they say, I have chronic pelvic pain, first question, how long have you had it for, right? Because it's got to be over six months. The problem with pain is that it's fluctuating. It goes up, it goes down, mm-hmm. it comes and yeah. it goes. And so that's okay. That doesn't mean that that the patient is not suffering. That doesn't mean that they don't have chronic pelvic pain, meaning chronic does not imply that it has to be daily. It can fluctuate, just like all pain. And it can be sensitized, It too. can be sensitized. Well, you can have things like central sensitization, mm-hmm. right? And that's something that applies to a lot of this stuff. But then that, oftentimes you ask yourself, is that secondary to the fact that We have a hormonal component or a muscular component. And so questions that I always ask or that I think primary care physicians can ask that can be helpful is, number one, any urinary symptoms associated with it frequency urgency because remember that's related to the pelvic floor the bladder contracts the pelvic floor doesn't adequately relax mm-hmm. you don't completely empty you go to the bathroom you go to the bathroom you go to the bathroom these patients always will have pain with sex does it hurt more when you sit for long periods of time all of this stuff can kind of help direct you to a diagnosis so that you're like ah let me go ahead and refer that to a urologist or a gynecologist or a pelvic pain specialist mm-hmm. um but i think those are really important questions to ask you know At this point, kind of in where medicine is, it's always like, get imaging, right? Like someone has chronic pelvic pain, (laughs) image them, get an ultrasound, do an x-ray, get an MRI. Sure, helpful, nine out of ten times, your imaging is going to be normal. If it's not, then great, then you have a kind of a cause. But generally, for chronic pelvic pain, Mm -hmm. really, it's going to come back normal. Um, And labs are the same thing. It's like, it's great to have all these labs, but what are you going to do with them? And we learned this in med school, right? You can get all this testing, you can do all this stuff, but is it going to affect your management? And more often than not, it doesn't. Um, But yeah, that's how I would like approach it really like with a systematic history and physical in a primary care setting, I think imaging is reasonable, but I would not go overboard with the imaging. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I have some patients who come to me who are like, "I had a negative sonogram, CT scan, then I went for an MRI." Like, okay, like w- at what point are we talking about like healthcare dollars? I wouldn't even know what I'm looking for, and right.
2: I think that's you should always ask yourself the question before you order these images.
1: 100% agree with that.
2: And
0: then like, so part of it too, it sounds like if you go systemically, you can sort of figure out maybe who is best to refer to if this seems like, you know, obviously maybe a little out of the scope. Is there any situation which you think a primary care physician should be starting a patient? Like maybe they're presuming there's a psychiatric component to this or something like that. Should they be starting them on any antidepressants or any medications in that category? (laughs) So
1: I'm going to go with no. And I'm going to say that for a reason. Mm -hmm. More often than not, when treating pelvic pain, you are dealing with multiple different pain generators. But oftentimes, these multiple different pain generators are treated with similar drugs. So, for example, in patients who have vulvodynia, pain in the vagina, or interstitial cystitis, pain in the bladder, we will often start them on a low-dose amitriptyline, right, Mm -hmm. a tricyclic antidepressant, to downregulate the nerves in that area. But if you don't know what you're treating and you're just kind of like, well, they have some sort of pelvic pain. Let me start them on a low dose tricyclic antidepressant. You're now somewhat masking their symptoms. And we don't really know what we're treating at that Mm -hmm. point. And then they come back and then and then you're like, oh, well they're like, well, maybe I have a little more back pain than usual. And someone starts them on gabapentin. And then you see patients who end up with polypharmacy, right? They're here, yeah. they're on 10 different medications. We don't, we haven't assessed the root cause because we've just started them on something. So I think that while it's a potential to be helpful, I think ultimately it's important to first assess appropriately where the pain is coming from. So then my next
0: question is for our friends who are primary care physicians in rural areas. They aren't necessarily able to refer. Now they know maybe I shouldn't be prescribing things that I don't know a lot about. Are there any
1: resources, anything they can direct their patients to? For sure. Um, And there's a lot of this. So one is the ICA website, which is a great website that kind of goes over different symptoms, different Providers in different areas, but even for primary care providers, like I do a course, I do an Ishwish course, it's a sexual medicine course. They're welcome to attend that and and just learn a little bit more of like, oh, okay, I see what she's doing there. Because I do think there's a role for primary care providers when appropriately trained. Yes. But I think that the problem occurs when we're not appropriately trained and we're trying to just kind of treat what we don't know. Um, so that's really I mean, I think that primary care providers can do more in this area. Yeah. need that knowledge base and it's not a hard knowledge base to learn but it's just one that should be learned if I was a PCP I'd be signing up for that course right now for sure (laughs) for sure I'll post it on my Instagram so everyone has a link (laughs) (laughs) what is Ishwish it's the uh, a sexual medicine society it's the international women's sexual health Society, Um, and so there's like all of these organizations, kind of like, ish. I know I I use that term without kind of explaining. And then there's the um, there's IPPS, which is the Pelvic Pain Society. These are all nonprofits, but they're basically there to educate and advocate for patients.
0: So one thing I definitely wanted to hit on was, and this is really complex, and it's going into everything, but I think. A lot of what we think about and a lot of probably what everyone thinks about is the role of like trauma and sex abuse and how it affects, you know, pelvic pain. And I'm sure that has to be a large amount of your patient
1: population. And So, you know, I'll be honest with you. It's not a large amount of my population, patient population. And I think this is actually I think this is actually a miss kind of a misnomer, so to speak, because I think that, and I think this has to do with the stigmatization of stuff, because okay. I think that a lot of people who have pain often don't discuss it because they're thought that it occurs in people who have trauma. Well, And, and sometimes it does. And I'll tell you how the trauma plays a role. When you have a history of sexual abuse, physical abuse, Oftentimes, there, number one, can be a concept of central sensitization, right? Fight or flight response. What is our nervous system doing? It's trying to protect us. It starts firing more. But then, in addition, how do people handle stressful circumstances? I, for one, clench my jaw. I'm a TMJ kind of a person. I go, Same. Mm. What do you think people do with their pelvic floors? They clench them, right? So now, not only are you centrally sensitized and you have these nerves firing and you have this burning pain, but then you also have the muscle spasming can y- lead to urinary symptoms, painful sex with deep penetration. So you see what I'm saying? So, And then and then on top of that, you now have this association, right? You believe that this trauma has caused all of these issues. And so as we try to move forward, we have to make sure that we're assessing all of that. And, you know, I know in psych, they always use this term biopsychosocial, but yeah. in pelvic pain we use it a lot too because you have to address each kind of area that this is coming from and while some of it is physiologic a lot of it is like this learned behavior that that's occurring because of all of this yeah so i'm glad i was able
0: to show a great example of physician bias there excellent <laughs> yeah. so then if you're like a primary care physician your patient is telling you about their pelvic pain is it important for you to get, like, a history of, like, if they have
1: any sexual trauma and how would that play a role? For sure. I mean, I, uh, when when a patient sits down, I ask about any history of sexual trauma. And usually patients are actually very forthcoming with that. Yeah. Um, They've
2: made it as far as to, you know, seek your help for a sensitive issue. Right. So
1: generally, that's, like, the first thing they'll say to me, like, look, I have this history of abuse in the past. And but then, when I almost tell them, like, "Look, we can still try and help this," and this is this is not necessarily the on- the reason that this is happening, it's like this relief comes over them, and they're like, "Oh my God, thank God!" Like, I just thought I had like now created this bigger issue. Um, but talking about sex is so important in general with all patients, because even even trauma aside, discussing things like pain with initial penetration, pain with deep penetration. Have you ever orgasmed? What positions hurt more? It builds a rapport where patients are like, oh, it's okay for me to talk about this. It's okay for me to express the fact that when when he's on top, this hurts more. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Where some people are like, oh, well, I thought that that might mean something different. So I think that that it's on many levels really helpful for people. Um, and I think addressing trauma and abuse Directly, and understanding that yes, it can play a role. No, you're not at fault. There's still many, many, many different things we can do for patients is a sense of relief because I think a lot of times they don't even realize that.
0: Yeah. And I think in some ways it can be comforting that, like, maybe this is a medical issue or something else because, you know, when you've already been victimized to think that. Now I have permanent physical terrible symptoms to deal with on top of it. It's like another way that you're
1: being revictimized every day. Exactly, that's such a great way to put it. Yeah, I, I honestly hadn't even thought about it that way, but it's so true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we do that a lot, and we shouldn't. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And 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 that can be an issue kind of why patients don't seek help too. Yes. Because they're like, well, I don't even want to touch this now with a 10-foot pole. I just kind of want to like leave it in my path. Yeah. Interesting. I like that that point. Yes, absolutely. As a
0: psychiatrist, my newest obsession has become like shame and mm-hmm. how much it plays a role in, in people's lives. And shame is essentially feeling like I am worthless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be so inhibiting. And I think oftentimes if there is any type of abuse or trauma or things like that, it plays a role. So I think it's just something to think about.
1: No, I think that's great. See, this is why I like psych so much. Now I'm like, let's talk about this more.
0: (laughs) I can recommend a lot of books to read. But on the note of things that I've been thinking about as a psychiatrist, um, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot this week is antidepressants and how I feel like, especially with women the amount they cause sexual dysfunction and how that might not be short term just limited to the times that these people are on medications it's it's making me really think about you know what being more maybe cautious with prescribing these medications I'm my mind has changed so much just about thinking about this in the past week and the conversations that I've had with people that I am definitely going to be in the future when I do prescribe these medications, checking with my patients and like if they are having sexual side effects, like, is this okay with you? Like if this was permanent, would that be okay with you? And obviously I'm not on the treating end. Mm -hmm. I'm more on the starting end of potentially causing sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Like, have you seen a lot of patients with complaints from
1: this? For sure. I mean, it, it I see it all the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot. I think some of it is dose dependent, to be honest. I think that sometimes when we come down on the dose, we do see some of it resolve. Mm -hmm. I think it's multifactorial in nature, as is anything with sexual dysfunction. So for a lot of patients, especially it's tough, too, because a lot of times these patients depend on the antidepressant. Like it's gotten them from a place where they were, where they never want to be Mm -hmm. again, where they are now. So they're kind of like, oh, I don't orgasm. I'll take that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But from my end, there's always stuff that I can at least try. So, for example, there, and this sounds, and people look at me like I'm quirky, but there's so much stuff we can do. So there's plant-based oils, things like Zestra that you apply to the clitoris 30 minutes before sex that just help blood flow to that area. Sometimes it helps to heighten orgasm for mm-hmm. these patients. Why not? Why wouldn't you try it? What is the con that's going to occur there? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But we see this a lot also in patients who are on, like, chronic birth control pills because, you know, their estrogen and progesterone is suppressed. That's what causes it. They don't ovulate. And so then they – so sometimes putting on, like, a little estrogen testosterone cream can be helpful. So, I mean, there's different ways. Obviously, it's patient-specific. Yeah. But I think the point that to drive home is that, like, if you're on an antidepressant and you're having sexual side effects, there are other things we can try Mm -hmm. to – get you over the hump, or at least to help, help you enjoy sex more. And then my next question would be, if you were a psychiatrist,
0: and you had a patient complaining of these things, should you like know the treatments and just do them yourself?
1: Or should you be referring out? I think that it would be great to know the treatments, except that they're so nuanced, and they're okay. oftentimes, and, and oftentimes as psychiatrists, you're not necessarily doing a gyn on a yeah. exam yeah. on a patient. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It would be a little and inappropriate, it, and it's a little, you know, <laughs> and there's boundaries there. Yeah. But someone like me does it every single time someone comes in, mm-hmm. and so I think in that respect, it's probably best to refer mm-hmm. out only because a lot of the stuff that is going to depend on their exam for me. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's going to yeah. depend on what it looks like, what it feels like at that moment.
2: I have a question for both of you. Um, How do you tell if the uh, sexual dysfunction is due to the depression or the antidepressant?
0: Age old question.
1: Mm -hmm. Should I take a stab uh, at it? Yes, Okay, so
0: I have been researching this a lot Mm -hmm. this past week. And so libido is often associated with depression. So like decreased libido. So if the person has decreased libido, you can't necessarily say it's from the antidepressant the one that you can say is generally from the antidepressant is inability to orgasm because or climax. yeah because mm-hmm. that is you specifically it when you're depressed it doesn't really numb your nerves mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. there but the libido is is a little bit different in that it can be difficult obviously the antidepressant can contribute to even lo- more lowering in the
1: libido but Absolutely, And I think you tie that in. You want to add another dynamic to that. Tie that into patients with pain. Mm-hmm. When you have pain, how are you going to orgasm when you're so used to having pain? You're not going to. You're going to clench up. You're going to decrease blood flow. So there are so many levels upon which I think that it makes it difficult. But I think you make a great point, And I totally agree with that. Yes, absolutely. Now, you know, there are a few new medications that have come out in the sexual dysfunction yeah. world for libido. Interestingly, medications that interact with neurotransmitters, right? They're not like hormones. They're medications that interact with neurotransmitters. So I think it's a delicate balance and I think it's tough to assess
0: so, unfortunately, we are out of time for today. We were a little limited. Some things came up for those of us involved in the podcast, <laughs> but we are definitely going to have you back on for a part two because okay. this conversation could go on for so much longer. It really can.
2: <laughs> and in the meantime, we can generate more of a conversation with our followers and our colleagues and have some, you know, more good topics. To yes yeah.
0: Awesome. We'll do some more. Obviously, I think people are going to have follow up questions based upon this. So it'll also give us the opportunity opportunity to do, you know, get some more questions from people out there and talk about all of this more. Because it's
1: so important to have this dialogue, I think. Like, and I, I think it's interesting to have kind of the different specialties here because it makes it even more interesting Mm -hmm. because people don't ever realize how closely all of this interacts you know and it's true
2: and we're all looking at it from you know different Different angles different colored glasses (laughs) yes
1: absolutely i like that but you were all into the central sensitization (laughs) which is good
0: (laughs) and that's how it goes so anyways thank you for this consult thank you guys (laughs) thank you this is awesome and we're looking forward to part two